1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Secure the insecure with Johnny Seifert, is sponsored by Jennings and Co Financial Planning, helping to make sense of money. Listening to Secure the Insecure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seaford and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. My guest this week: she can sing, she can write, she can talk, and she can act. Her dad can dance, her son can sing, and her husband can paint. But that's the outside. And the outside paints one picture, and then there's the inside. And I can't tell you how honoured I am to have this guest with me today. I remember when she taught me French in Waterloo Road, and I've become such a fan of hers. And in the past four years, since she released Black Eyed Susan, I've followed her, I've learnt from her, and she just inspires me every day. And I'm so delighted to say that I'm going to call her a legend. I'm going to put it out there. The legend, Denise Welsh, joins me now. Hello, Denise
1: Hi, Johnny. Wow, that is that is an introduction to top all introductions. Thank you so much. And we've become friends as well. We don't hasten to add.
2: No, and we're, we we socialise yeah. together and I've got you yeah. work, you've got me work and yeah. we've had a beautiful relationship with it over the past four years.
1: We have indeed and I'm very um, I'm very honoured to do your podcast. It's about time. I wonder when you're going to ask me.
2: It's because I'm quite scared. I, I, there's so much I want to ask you and I'm you've done so many interviews for your book it's number one at the moment and your book the unwelcome visitor depression how i survive it is just incredible it's literally the bible for anyone who's got those symptoms and i was quite scared because yeah. you've done so many interviews and i saw you on loose women and you spoke to chris stowe talk radio that i can't get to that level of I, I don't know how to ask you questions differently to what everyone you else has can, asked
1: you can you- be anything because a i'm a majority so i love talking about myself even though i've exhausted that this past week but everybody brings something different to the table and everybody listens to different things so although i've talked about it to lots of people there will be people listening to this who maybe haven't heard any of the things that i've done so you know and also you come at it from someone who understands the illness who has learned from me from previous things i've done i'm thrilled and honored from from a personal point of view that my book is doing so well to be number three on the sunday Times bestseller list we record this podcast is is what every single author wants to be on that list but it's kind of like it's heartwarming and it's overwhelming but at the same time it's a bit heartbreaking that my story is relating to so many people who still come at this illness with the same fear and stigma-related stigma aspects to it and, and and guilt and shame and all these ridiculous things that there was 30 years ago, Johnny, when I first started talking about it. So any time we can talk about it is great.
2: And I don't think it's just talking. I think it's watching because your book, and as I said, Black-Eyed Susan, and if no one's seen it, go on YouTube and, and search it. You are the first person and okay, you've said it in fact, 31 years ago, when you first had it, people didn't really accept it. But you're the first person that has really opened up about this is what depression is. Because I interview a lot of reality stars. And a lot of reality stars say I've got anxiety, I've got depression. And I ask them about it. And they don't really have an answer. It's almost like a little badge of honor they've put on themselves. Whereas you show those motions, you know, for example, on your Instagram, a couple of months ago, I was heartbroken when I saw you crying, saying, the visitor is here. And
1: that was what spawned this book. It was actually nine months ago, can you believe? It was in September because it was when I started. So basically, for those who didn't see that or know nothing of my history, I have spoken out about it for 31 years because I. it started as postnatal depression when I gave birth to my first son, Matthew. So prior to that, I had had no history of psychological mental illness. If I used to say I was depressed, it was like... A lot of people who don't understand about clinical depression, it was when, when something went wrong in my life, or when the weather was horrible, or when I didn't get a job, or when somebody I knew died. You know, all of these things that you are you are bound to have a normal reaction to, which makes you feel very low and sad. But sadness and clinical depression are completely different things because depression does exactly what it says on the skin. It depresses every single emotion. So you can't feel sadness or happiness or or guilt or or anger or you can't love anything. It it, it completely takes away every single feeling. And a life without feeling is no life at all, which is when we unfortunately see the um, tragic headlines. But what happened last September was I was driving up to my sister's house in the northeast with my one of my best friends, Lisa, and her two children, who are Mattie's goddaughters in the back. Lisa was driving. We were going up to my sister's. My sister fosters three children. The kids all get on great together. So all this journey was about singing in the car, looking forward to this lovely weekend we were going to have, going to the trampoline park and all kids related stuff. And that's all I was thinking about. By the time we got to the Angel of the North, I describe it as... This is how an onset of depression is. And then an, an episode of endogenous depression as opposed to reactive depression, which is when it's organic and you don't know when it's going to come. And I suddenly felt the color drawing out of my life. And it's instantaneous. And I get a tingling in my palms and my hands and a metallic taste in my mouth, a very surreal detachment from reality. And I know that the unwelcome visitor, as I call it, is on its way. It's just as horrible and terrifying as it was at the very beginning. But I know now what it is, and I know now it will go. By the time we got to my sister's, I made my excuses and went to bed because anyone with depressive illness knows that it robs you of any enjoyment of anything. So all you want to do is be alone. I didn't tell my family that night, even though my family understand it. They've known me for 30 years. But sometimes I just think, I just, I'm going to go to bed, and maybe it'll be gone by the morning. And I went to bed and had a dreadful night's sleep, woke up, and it was there. And I talk about this a lot. At every opportunity, I will talk about mental illness. But obviously, I'm normally talking about it when I'm well and when I'm lucid. So you're talking about it in the past tense. And impulsively, I picked up my phone. And I decided to chronicle what turned out to be a three-day episode of depression. And once I'd said I was going to do it, I felt I had to carry on through. I didn't discuss it with anybody. My husband, my kids weren't with me. They would have told me not to do it. Uh, Only for my own, uh, only for for myself. They would have thought I was going to take on too much. But I didn't think it. And I did it. And I didn't look at the responses because I was too poorly. So it wasn't until a few days later that I realized that this had gone viral. And... And it blindsided me with the effect that this has people, not only those people who have it feeling solace in the fact that someone understood them, being able to show it to family and friends who have never understood. And I even had many comments which really moved me from people who said, I have never understood depression I have sinned about it. I have never had any empathy or particular sympathy with people. i thought, oh, pull yourself together, the words we hear every day. And they said, but now, seeing your videos, I really feel I understand a bit more, and I'm going to educate myself on that. So when publishers, three of them came to me, I went with Hodder and Stoughton because I felt that they really understood my story. I was reluctant to do the book in the first place because I felt it might Trigger me, and I felt it would, which did take me to dark places that I didn't really want to revisit, but as soon as I started writing it, I felt an overwhelming sense of responsibility that I have a voice for people, which i've always had, but I just felt that I was doing the right thing and I hope that I was because the response has been phenomenal.
2: So when you're writing it, did you feel in a way you're suppressing the visitor because you're going, well, I'm one step ahead of you. You can bring what you want to me, but I'm now here and I'm going to tell the world what you're doing to me and I'm going to be better than you are and I'm not going to let you get to me anymore.
1: Yeah, kind of. It doesn't always work, Johnny. But that is exactly what I do on a daily basis, regardless of the book. There's been times when I've been stood backstage. I took a 12-year break from doing theater, live theater, because I was too terrified to go on because I had an episode on stage once. And it was crippling and debilitating. The words were coming out my mouth as I was having this breakdown. And it was so frightening. I didn't go on stage. So... What happens is when I'm in a, a situation like that, which is obviously nerve-wracking at the best of times, going on stage, every single actor stands backstage on the first night, every single one, and thinks, what the bleep have I put myself through? Why am I doing this? No one forced me to do this play. I feel ill. Some people throw up. It's awful. We don't know why we do it. But we go on there. We hear the audience reaction. That's why we do it. But there's time to go backstage. But that's where the kind of thing happened where I where I made it a separate entity. So that's very deceptive that you say that I was doing that in the in the book because the book is depression, the unwelcome visit, depression and how I survive it. So it's not depression and how to survive it because obviously I have no medical knowledge whatsoever. So I'm not in a position to tell people how to survive it, nor is anybody, to be honest. They still don't know. But if anybody can solace or comfort from how I survive it, then that's what I do in this book, which is, a striving for normalcy there's a lot of talk about striving to be happy and if you are a normal non-depressed person looking for things that make you happy is great but happy happiness is an emotion which is the result of something that makes you happy like sadness is the result of something that makes you sad depression as i've said wipes all those emotions out so what the depressive wants is to be normal to have the ability to feel those emotions. Because when they're flattened, you can feel nothing. And whether you've got the best job you've ever wanted that would pay you money to look after you and your family for the rest of your days, or whether your whole family had been wiped out in an aircraft disaster, it would be the same feeling of nothingness. And that is the most terrifying, isolating illness you can have.
2: When you're acting and you've done Biker Grove and Soldier, Soldier, Coronation Street and the theatre, that's one subject, which is the acting side. Then you've got the side of you... Past that where you've been on Loose Sermon as a presenter. Mm-hmm. How do you find that difference between being an actress and being a presenter when it comes to your depression?
1: That's quite an interesting question actually as, as regards how I deal with it with with both. When you're an actor and y- you, you have a script, so obviously you can't come off script, whereas on a show like Loose Women you can to agree. Having said that, I never really have. The only times I've about it on television when we have when we have been having a mental health topic there have been times over the years especially during my awful wilderness years when i was self-medicating where i would be on that set of loose women and i would be in such a terrible state nobody and i would be going through the motions and say uh, you know i've been anchoring the show before and and saying and, of course, now would you welcome from Australia we've known him from neighbours and we're known him Mr. Blah, 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 blah. And I've gone upstairs and there's been a message from my late mum who died eight years ago, but there a message from mum saying, you're not well, are you? It's like she can see it in my eyes. Lincoln and I have been at events before and he'll look at me over in a corner of the room and I'm laughing and jovially talking to people and I'll catch his eye and he'll mind to me, you're not well, are you? And I'll say no. And people who love me can tell. But when you're in the theater it is the most frightening time. And the last time it happened to me on stage was a year, the year before last when I was doing the national tour of um, Calendar Girls, the musical. And I had deliberated for a long time before taking that job, partly for the normal reasons of do I want to be away from home for that length of time. You know, or, all of those things, because the whole job was a year, pretty much all in. And that's a long time. But I loved the role so much. Gary Barlow helped persuade me to make that, decision, which is always flattering. And and so I did it. One of the things for me that other people don't have is a year is a long time for me not to get an episode. So at some point of this duration, I am going to get an episode. And I nearly got to the end through some pretty tricky times, a couple of challenging things going on in that show. I got nearly to the end. The luxury about commercial theatre and West End Theatre is that you have an understudy. I think what a lot of people who don't know is if you're doing shows in repertory like Bolton or Manchester Royal Exchange or anywhere like that, one of my favourite theatres, Live Theatre Company, Newcastle, all of those places, and Hope Mill in, um, in uh, Manchester, you don't have an understudy. So if you can't go on, the show can't go on. And that costs them thousands and thousands of pounds. So I did have an understudy, but this happened to me when I was on stage. There was an actress in it called Karen Lombard. And I felt that I'd had a, we'd all had this flu bug thing. And you know, when you've had flu and your, head, your head's really full and everything seems a little bit distorted. And we went on stage one night and I couldn't hear properly. And I suddenly got this anxiety that I was getting my thing. And because I felt like this detachment from everything. Anyway, it was just awful. It went from bad to worse. I felt I couldn't remember the lines of my song. I got the line of my song wrong. I managed to get it back shaking like a leaf. The audience couldn't tell a thing, m- mind you. This is where being an actress helps. Anyway, at one point, we were doing the famous photography scene where they all get their boobs out. Karen Dunbar looked over me and she said, are you okay? And I just shook my head. And she was doing this thing, and <laughs> her character but going, just telling me to breathe, to breathe, to breathe. And every time I, got, I looked over at her and, I, and she kept going, minutes 10 minutes 10 minutes and I got to the end of the stage and I ran off and her and Sarah uh, AJ Casey Phil Corbett my co-stars that I loved all came into my dressing room and I just collapsed to the floor and um, and uh, I took some time off work then because I was at I was able to um but there was times that over in my life when I never never took time off work and I just didn't because I I just I was talking the talk of telling people not to push themselves with this, but still not walking the walk. Because if you had a kidney stone and you were off work, all the other people in the show would go, Oh my God, poor soul, she's got a kidney stone. But if you are off with depression, there are some people who will go, Oh, well, we're all a bit low love. We're all, we're all a bit depressed dear." So not only do we have a sometimes t- what can be a terminal illness, we have to prove that we have it. And, The analogy that I make is that nobody listening to this podcast would ever go up to someone in a bed with a serious, serious illness, as serious as, dare I say, cancer, and say to them, well, you look all right to me. I mean, you've had it, what, a month now? Do you know something? If I were you, I'd get up, put your trainers on, get out for a bloody good walk, and you'll feel a lot better. It wouldn't enter their heads to say that. And yet that's what we've got when we can't even get out of bed to have a shower. It's so debilitating. And that's the difference. So now, if I'm poorly, I will tell work I'm poorly in the same way that I would if I had gastroenteritis. I know my own illness. I know that the episodes are usually three or four days long. And I'm kinder to myself. Would I still say if I got an episode in the middle of loose women? I don't know that I would... But it is obviously much easier in a show where you are yourself than if you are a character. When we were doing Calendar Girls, we all, all of the principals had an understudy. And the flu epidemic that we had was so bad that we were all off. And one night there were six understudies on in, in principal roles. And it still got a stacking ovation. So it was like, oh, okay, so you haven't missed us that much. So believe you me, I know the show goes on, and that's what I wish I'd known years ago. Because the show goes on is in our DNA, all of us as performers. It's in our DNA, and it should be in our DNA, and it isn't in the young ones these days because they haven't had to get onto television. Because now you can get onto television for sleeping with someone. You know, you get your own show if you do things like that now. And, and well, you know, maybe that might change. I don't know. But basically, there isn't the apprenticeship, so they don't realise how hard one these jobs are. Um, they will now because of the way the industry has changed. So maybe, maybe certain things will uh, will come back into favour again. I'm under no illusions that I'm I am replaceable. I'm also under no illusions that I will have lost work because of it. I never have wanted to work for anybody who so would judge me differently by having a mental illness as I would a physical illness. And if they have, then I'd love to work for them, because. What I strive for is to have a parity between mental and physical illness. And I would love every single person in this world to have an episode of clinical depression for 15 minutes and for it to go away forever and never darken their doors, or even for 15 seconds for them to feel what it's like. And this book is, I said that the elevator pitch of this book would be that those people who have it will understand, and those people who don't will hopefully learn how to. And um, and I've just had every day at the minute, I am overwhelmed and in tears by comments I'm getting about this. But a lot of them, more than I thought, are for people who are saying, I've heard you talking about your book, Denise, this week. And I'm going to buy it because I don't understand the illness. But my mum has it, my sister has it, my husband has it, my wife has it. And I want to understand. And that's fantastic for me.
2: That's what I was going to say to you. To That's the big thing, is that for you, you're experiencing it in the moment. But for those around you, your family, it's how they react to it. When are they giving you too much attention? When do they take their foot off the gas and go, OK, I'm going to leave Denise to do what she does? What's your advice to people around the person who has depression? How should we be treating that person?
1: Well, it's good that you say that, because the, the final chapter in the book is actually written by my family and friends. And I decided that later on and the publishers were going, oh my God, Denise, you we're just about to go to press and now you've thrown this other chapter. And I said, no, I've just, I, you know, the people who love people with depression, the people who live with people with depression are very underrepresented. And so I wanted that to be in the book and it's proved to be a very popular and informative part of it. And the advice I would give is everybody's illness, every, everybody deals with things in a different way. But those who have clinical depression, as I do, will want to be left alone. They want to know, when I'm poorly, I want the people who love me, like Lincoln in the main, because he lives with me, to know that I am poorly. And what he does is he takes pressure off me. So he said to my friends, just leave her alone for a few days. She's okay. He will phone people and say, look, I know Denise was going to come to that, but she can't. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about... It's very difficult, Johnny, if I've got a massive great big charity event of which I'm the patron to not go. And I won't push myself to go. But nowadays I will go and I will tell them that I'm not well. I won't hide it under a bushel anymore. And I can see in people's eyes the people who understand what I'm what I'm saying. But if I can, if it's something like a dinner party or well, we don't really go we don't drink anymore so we tend to we tend to be socially isolating as much as we can to be perfectly honest um, but um Lincoln will try and take everything out of my diary that is possible to do and he just makes sure that I'm okay I like I need to go I need to be on my own I don't want to talk to anybody he'll take the phone away from me because honestly even if my phone goes my heart starts to rest and this is when people know I'm poorly. Every actor, that's what my friend still calls the actor whore in them, which is, oh, I'm not going to work for a couple of months. I'm not going to do that job. Oh, I don't want to do that. Brr, brr, they've offered you this job. Yes, when does it start? And there's always a bit of that in us. So one of the numbers that is always kind of at the top of your list is your agent. And when, even when my agent rings me, I can't answer the phone. And my agent, Bex, is brilliant. She just texts me and says, are you okay? I say, I've got my thing. And she says, okay, no worries. And she detracts any calls from me. She keeps every email. I've got an agent who prioritizes my mental health above my work. And that is amazing because my work is her work. You know, my money is her money. So um, I'm very, very lucky with the people I surround myself with. And that's the advice I would give to everybody is to listen to the depressed person and do what they want you to do. They don't want you to chippy them around. It's not going to help by buying a new dress or putting trainers on or going for a walk or exercising. When people say exercising helps mental health, it does. But it only helps in between the episodes. Or for those people who suffer from not depression, but maybe low low mood, it can really increase the endorphins and everything. And, and so I try to, I try to, I lapse all the time, but I try to keep a level of fitness up in between my episodes. Also, of course, I've taken alcohol out of the equation eight years ago. I wish I'd been able to do that before, but I didn't because I was in a cycle of, of pain and hurt, and I just didn't. But... De- taking alcohol out doesn't cure depression, but it stops making it worse. It stops compounding it, and it means that the episodes are short lived, without a doubt.
2: I'm in a weird place. I work in the media, and there are certain things the media does that I do not agree with, and one mm-hmm. of those things is hacking, and uh, you spoke in your book about it, uh, about the hacking scandal that affected you, and I'm so sorry, first, that, I, that this happened to you, and secondly, my question is around the fact that you've got these external people playing with your life that you can't control how do mm-hmm. you stay on top of it that you don't let it get you because that factor must start making you feel really anxious and thinking okay everyone's oh, talking about me everyone's talking I didn't, about
1: me i mean i i did let it get to me and it broke me down you know i i mean i, my, I was in a pretty bad place anyway in in many many ways but I had just had my second child, who was very, very sick. Luckily, he's a fabulous 19-year-old healthy boy, uh, man. But um, he was very, very poorly. And I, was, you know, I. The thing is, people say to me, "Did you get postnatal depression with your second child?" Because I didn't have Louis till 12 years after Matthew, because I was frightened to have another child. And then it just happened, and thank God I did, because it's wonderful, you know. But people say, "Did you get postnatal depression after your second child?" And it's like, well. Not really anymore, but I I still had depressive episodes because I I now suffer from depression. So it never sort of, you know, most people, and I want to say this to anybody that might be having a baby while, you know, or what is listening or indeed who who is planning to or, or has just had one. Most people who have postnatal depression will go on to make a complete recovery and never have it again. Sadly, I didn't. And it left me open to this as an illness, which it can do to some people, as can many other things in life. But the hormonal imbalance, the chemical chaos was so great in me, it led to it forever. Although that's another story, it took me 20 years to get someone to accept the origin might have been hormonal. So basically, the thing about the hacking was, was that I had no idea it was happening. Nobody did. So what happened was that every single thing that I did or said w- would come out in the in a news in a newspaper just after 9/11. So everybody was very, very low and frightened and. And it was like that feeling when lockdown happened. Everything went very surreal in the world and none of us knew what the world was about anymore. And it was a very scary time. And, you know, I felt very, very vulnerable and I was filming The Vice with Ken Stoughton and and, and I was looking around at these people on the night of 9-11 because we had to keep on filming and looking at these people laughing in the bar thinking, how are you laughing? How are you laughing? How are you? The world's changed, you know? Oh, and it was just awful. I was in a terrible state. Anyway, my friends persuaded me to go to this bar, and I didn't want to go. And I could feel the unwelcome visitor, and all of this. Anyway, this girl befriended me in the toilets of a of a place in Beecham Place in um, Knightsbridge. And being me, I took pity on her. She was this poor little rich girl. She said she didn't have any friends. Her father was very rich, and I introduced her to all my friends. I gave her my number. My friends used to go, My God, Denise, when you're drunk, you might as well just have your bloody phone number tattooed on your breathing forehead, you know. And I just, Oh, take me number, take me number. Anyway. I was very busy as a working mom and and I went home and probably for 20 of the 22 phone calls she made to me or something like that, I was laughing Louis, really, I was working on a series called Soap Fever, I was filming The Vice, I was taking my kids to school, I was living a very normal working mother life. And then on this phone call she made to me, me in Spain, she entrapped me into a conversation about had I ever taken drugs. I admitted that I had. She recorded the phone call. It was just awful, and I woke up on the Sunday with a horrible, horrible headline, my cocaine shame, or something, some such a, some such thing, and and it and she had been befriending me for a month, pretending she was my new friend to the point that I was thinking she was a bit of a stalker, but I was still being nice to her because I just felt that she needed a friend, and that was who she was. So then, years later, when the police told me that I had been hacked from 2001 to 2007 that I had just bumped into her in a club and she'd got oh, that's Denise Welch. I wonder if she's got a bit of a story. But no, she had been sent there. She had been sent to... She'd had been she'd actually entrapped me into that friendship by being sent there because for some reason the press decided to pick on me. And I'd, so, of course, for those years, I didn't trust anybody. I mean, it brings a lump to my throat because I didn't trust the people nearest to me, Johnny, because if there are certain things that you have only told somebody or certain things that only they know... And they end up in a paper. You don't know that there's such a thing as hacking. Who are you going to think did it? And, you know, I had a very dear friend who died um, 10 years ago now. And to be honest with you, he was a journalist. but He was a features writer. I loved him very much. And he died with me never completely believing that he hadn't had anything to do with it. And he didn't. And only because he'd been with me that night with that girl. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of sad stories, and I know it's very easy for people to go, oh, well, you know, these famous people, these people on television, you know, they, they play the press at one game, and nobody has the right to do that. Nobody has the right to put bugs in your hotel room. Nobody has the right to do that, and they did that on two occasions. And I don't say this is, you don't, you don't need to fact-check this because it wouldn't be in the book if it wasn't fact-checked, you know what I mean? And I sat five hours in Putney Police Station, going through this whole catalogue of events that had happened, with all of this stuff. Thinking, oh my God, my God! They, at one point, when I was working on a series called Down to Earth, they had taken the flat opposite where I was staying. There was an estate agent's opposite, and they had rented the flat above the estate agent's. The press. I mean, it was, it was, it was. You know, I had no idea about this, and. Um, it was, and it's a horrible, horrible thing to have happened. So, and and of course that added to me. I don't make excuses for anything. I don't make excuses for any of my behaviours, but there are reasons for it, and that made my drinking and my self medication ten times worse. Without a shadow of a doubt, it was the money I got from that hacking claim that I put into Black Eyed Susan because I was determined that some good would come out of that.
2: It just shocks me to the core that someone human would even do that. Let alone getting a story, but the fact you've put your name to it, the fact that they've hired out a place, the fact they've bugged a room, that's not human, that's not nice character traits, and that's the problem of the world. You know, we're so on this pedestal at the moment about being offended by certain aspects and certain words, and I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter, but, you know, uh, equality and certain phrases that we've all had and we've all said. But this is another level. This is what we should be looking at, not on the words that we say and if they're outdated. We need to be looking at our actions and the way we speak together. And, you know, when Caroline Flack passed away and we had the Be Kind campaign, that lasted the week and then everyone went back to being as they were.
1: It's quite shocking what went on. And I always think, Johnny, about that. That if that was happening to little old me, little old moderately successful actress me, can you imagine what the Megans of the world go through. And I you know I'm a fan of you know you know I'm a fan of theirs and I've and I've supported Harry and Meghan. I don't know either of them personally. I've never met them before. Well have I met no, I've never met them before. But I just think the bullying that has got on with that girl I can't even imagine how she survived mentally, especially a lot of it happening in the first year she had that baby. Because I know what it's like in my little tiny minor way to be at the center of a storm like that. But to be at the center of a global storm of hatred is just pretty horrible. Um, so I just always I mean obviously Megan wasn't a twinkling in anyone's eye then, but I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, if they put me through this, imagine what the you know, what, what some of the massive A-listers and the royal family and everything go through if they're doing this to me, putting bugs in my hotel room, you know. It, it's a, and, and of course it was the ripple affected, whose lives it affected. You know, my son was twelve. You know, Matthew was twelve years old when this happened. And i just had a and i just had a baby and my mum and dad and you know, and I'm not saying that some of my behaviors went wrong, but they wouldn't have been out there in the way that they, they that they that, that they were. And then, of course, I blamed other people because there was one one morning that um, I was um, I was in a hotel room and I came down the next morning and saw someone that I was working with and 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 the story got out. And I always blamed that person. It wasn't him at all. It wasn't him at all. It was because there'd been a bug in my room.
2: It's just astounding. Yeah. And as you said, your son being 12 years old at the time, you know, parents talking, word gets around, it goes to the school, he then feels output and your output and you become victimised. And that's not the way we should be living. I want to I want your final thoughts, Denise, on what we do next, because your book, Unwelcome Visitor, Depression, How I Survive It is a Bible, it should be by everyone's bedside, and they should be giving it to a friend. I've got two copies, I gave one to a friend who Thinks they're depressed at the moment, and I said, "Look, just read this as your Bible, and I want your book to be passed around people to go, look, this is what happened."
1: That because because I've had some, I've had um a few messages from people in mental health nurses, and my friend um, Karen Johnson, who's a psychiatric nurse in Rochdale. And She's actually, and these people are giving it to their patients, and so that's fantastic if it can be that book. So go on, what were you going to ask
2: me? I was just going to say, in you know, in sum up in kind of thirty seconds, why should people be buying your book?
1: Well, I think that. It certainly will help them understand because, like I said before, a very underrepresented bunch of people is those people who live and love people with depression and anxiety and they don't know how to react and to be. And it will just give them a bit more of an understanding about the illness. It will also make those people who have not got a voice, or don't feel they'll have a voice, use me to give the voice. Give the book to someone and say, look, this is what I feel, mom. You you know, somebody said to me that their mum has hugged them for it makes me cry. Their mum has hugged them for the first time in five years because she's read my book. And that's just quite amazing. So use my book as a voice to help your voice be heard is what I'm trying to do. And I will be a voice for these people until I take my last breath. Mm-hmm.
2: I told you she was going to be inspiring and look how much inspiration she has spread how much you've learned from her it's so important to distance the illness from a celebrity for example that you thought you were going to just hear Denise Welsh talking about being Steph Haydock and her memories of Waterloo Road and trust me there's a whole other podcast where I want to ask her all about Waterloo Road there's a podcast where I want to talk to her all about Lucy but where does that get us and working in showbiz and being around the showbiz parties, you can get slightly deluded into thinking that the world is all glamorous and sparkly. But actually, this is real life. And this is a real conversation. And me and Denise have had a real conversation that you've just listened to. And that's not where it stops. That's where the conversation begins. Because now you've heard that, I want you to go off. I want you to have a conversation with a friend and check in on them. I want you to check in on them and ask them how they're actually feeling. Not what they've done today, not what they've done this week, but how are they feeling? Because until we start getting people talking about how they're feeling, we're never going to make a change and make people feel special again. And that's what we need to do. We had the Be Kind campaign and we lost it after a week. We tried it. We failed it. Let's not fail again. You've been listening to Secure the Insecure with me, Johnny Seifer. If you like what you heard, please do rate the podcast, like the podcast and subscribe to the podcast. I can't make this podcast successful with your help and your comments really mean everything. So if you can do go on iTunes go on to the podcast and write a little review. Give it five stars and tell a friend. Tell a friend to listen to this podcast and tell a friend to buy Denise Welsh, The Unwelcome Visitor. It's the most important book you're going to buy this year. I've been Johnny Seaford. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Secure the Insecure with Johnny Seifert is sponsored by Jennings and Co-Financial Planning, helping to make sense of money.
0: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues